As a former senior government official, how would you characterize Canada's presence in the Asia-Pacific region? Are we an active and major participant in the region? So we're, um, we're performing under what we should be doing. Um, we're not investing enough. We don't have the, deploy the deployable capacity, both trade officers, diplomatic, and uh, military to have a meaningful presence. We've had a better presence in the past than we do now. And um, we have lost some of the old linkages that were of some value to us. So the question is, is the present government prepared to make the investment necessary? And the problem is, we have seen the actual expenditures in the Foreign Affairs Department decline in terms of purchasing value steadily over the last 20 years. And we are not quite in that rapid a defense decline, but in relative terms, we have been robust. There's only two Canadian Prime Ministers who ever had us at the 2% plus range of our expenditures in peacetime, Louis Saint Laurent and Brian Mulroney. And everybody else has had us beneath. And um, I think what happens when you get a center-left government, well-intentioned, good people, is they don't really understand the symbolism of having an armed force diplomatic presence that is friendly, supportive, and engaging in constructive ways, which we are not able to do. I mean, I, I, I have some knowledge of what our both unclassified and classified um, naval deployments have been in the Korean Peninsula area, and they are of great value, but just not enough of them, just not enough depth, just not enough coherence. Um, so when our friends in the ROK who go out of their way to be helpful to the Canadian Navy, to be receptive in a thousand ways, their Navy is bigger than ours. Their armed forces is bigger than ours. Now, they have a tougher neighborhood than we have generally to deal with. But the notion that uh, Canada, who is so heavily involved with others and with the South Koreans themselves and the protection of South Korean freedom and democracy, should now be kind of like, you know, military light rather than fully engaged and supportive just strikes me as, as a serious mistake. I know the Japanese and I know there's a, there's a historic Japanese-Korean dynamic which will never probably change for many generations. The Japanese would do far more with us if we could. Um, and uh, for us to muster three ships, two submarines, and some aircraft for the largest naval operation in the Pacific every couple of years is like a huge effort. You know, people are moving and changing and arranging, it's, and it's inappropriate. You know, um, the fact that a country like Canada with a shoreline our size doesn't have what I refer to as a 60-ship fighting navy with 30 ships on each coast and some transiting back and forth through the canal as necessary is an embarrassment. So, you know, you pay a price for not having capacity, and we have been diminishing our capacity for too long. So, when our Asian friends are interested in our views, I think it's because they're being polite. Some, like Japan and China, have direct trade interests, but generally speaking, it's because they're being polite. And that's good. 
but I'd like to think we could go back to the days where Canadian views and advice and counsel was treasured because the relevance of it was earned. And we earned that counsel because of our efforts in World War I and World War II and our efforts in the uh, Korean War and our efforts in Afghanistan and other places, and it's the old story. If you don't show up, you can't have any presence, and if you don't show up time and time again, people wonder why they would invite you to begin with. Now, let us focus on the Korean Peninsula. Many international communities and peoples alike, including Canadians, are concerned over the development of North Korea's nuclear threat. How do you perceive these developments, and how should Canada respond to the destabilization of regional security and trade, especially when North Korea never threatened Canada, unlike the United States of America? So you would have to, for the last part of your question, have the following conclusion about the targeting acuity of the North Korean ballistic system to say, with any comfort, that missiles aimed at Seattle and Los Angeles constitute no threat to Canada. I think that's optimistic. They may never decide to dispatch a missile towards Canada, but may end up here anyway. So I think that keeping a country as far advanced on the nuclear track from the threshold of some nuclear capacity is probably no longer possible or appropriate. And I've always said, in the Middle East, I say, so it's Israelis and Palestinians have to work it out. They should have an agreement that they reach one guaranteed by the Gulf states and by the United States and by others. But in the end, the principles have to work it out. So that's why I've taken the view that Canada should take its guidance from the duly elected president of the Republic of Korea, who sought office and a mandate to lower the tensions and look for a better, less hostile relationship on the peninsula. If they are prepared to accept a true peace treaty that replaces an uh, armistice, where there's an agreement on no first use of a whole bunch of different kinds of weapons, including nuclear, it's not for us to say it's not good enough. If the South Koreans are prepared to come to terms with that, then my view is it's our job to provide whatever we can, technical support, analytical support, social and economic aid for the DPRK to help the ROK bring up the economic standard of the folks who are their northern neighbors. We should be there. We should be counted on to be there and to do our share. Because the peace of Korea, not only because of the huge Korean population in Canada, but because of the growing Canadian business and other interests in Korea, makes a lot of sense. But it's not for us to second guess what the duly elected government of the Republic of Korea decides they can live with. It's for us to facilitate the ongoing technical and other discussions that, you know, it's the old notion of Gorbachev versus Reagan at the, um, at the meetings in Iceland, in Reykjavik. Trust would verify. What's the verification system going to be? by which both Pyongyang and uh, Seoul can be comfortable. Well, Canada can help in that respect, and other countries. And we should be actively engaged in figuring out how to do that. 
we should actually be actively engaged in setting up nonpartisan aid organizations which can actually get money to those who need it for food and education and health care and infrastructure in the DPRK that doesn't always have to run through the government because there's a cost to that but you have to get the government of the DPRK on side with letting the money go to this school organization or that health organization in a way that doesn't violate their legitimate sovereignty in their own country. As a senior strategic advisor, what would be the ideal post to ending the nuclear threat posed by North Korea? Is regime change the only option for the global community? And how should Canada contribute to stabilization and cooperation on the Korean Peninsula? So I've often believed that the best way for regime change to happen is if the dynamic within the various power elites of the DPRK begins to move in a slightly different direction, either with Kim Jong-un or with whomever his successor may or may not be. You know, when we achieved confederation Canada and parliamentary democracy, we didn't throw away the elites. We created the Senate. Mr. McDonald said, fishermen, farmers, factory workers, they're going to be represented in the House of Commons. Who's going to speak for the wealthy people who own everything? We couldn't give them absolute power, because that's wrong. But by putting them in a second complementary chamber where they could express views and be part of the mix, they were okay with democracy passing to the broad group of the population. So the question becomes, what are the elements of guarantee and self-preservation that would facilitate the present DPRK administration allowing for greater economic growth, greater economic and educational advancement for the people who live in DPRK, better children's opportunities. And I think there are many creative ways to negotiate that. And I, I know enough about, and I have enough Korean friends to understand that when they have an opportunity for education and hard work, they are the most productive people in the entire world. Productivity produces economic growth, produces people who want change, who think their own rights matter, and that will change a culture. But coming from the outside to change a culture by saying, we've decided who should replace Kim Jong-un is insane. It's never worked anywhere before. Why would it work here? And we have, at least in the region, the Chinese have a very real interest in a peaceful transition and a very real interest in making DPRK into a market as opposed to a beneficiary of charity from our neighbors. And we saw when they allowed people to work together in the factories and more rapid exchange between different families, it was a very good time to be on the Korean Peninsula. That is in our interest. A robust economic growth cycle in the entire peninsula, you look at the difference between ROK and DPRK or Ganshuan, it would be good if that other side came up because that, my view, is very simple. When you have hope and prospects and a growing middle class, you have all the incentives for peace. When you have none of the above, you have all the incentives for war. North Korea is infamous for its nationwide human rights violations especially concerning women who are exposed to a range of abuses, including sexual exploitation. Canada, on the other hand, 
has shown exceptional leadership in promoting human rights, human dignity, and values of democracy and freedom. How do you see North Korea's human rights challenges, and what measures should Canada take to solve this crisis? So we now have some exchanges which take place between the DPRK and Canada. We have uh, about 20 academics who come from the business school in the DPRK who come to the University of Toronto. I've met with them and others. And um, I think we need to expand the exchanges. We've had a program, people don't know this, where Canadian judges have been going over and trying to educate Chinese judges about different judicial approaches in a country which has a more open judicial system than the Chinese have and will probably have for a long time. I think there's a million ways to share information respectfully. And the, broad, the broader the exchanges, the more larger reaches of society. I mean, why would, if you talk to the international diplomats who deal with our North Korean friends, these are very well-educated men and women, mostly men. They've gone to the best schools in the world. They dress in $15,000 suits. I mean, they're doing very well. So you ask the question, well, why would they go back? because they have a very good life. They have gorgeous residences, they have staff that are cheap, a high quality of life. They don't want to lose that. But if they understand that they get to keep it because other people get to get a little bit more, that's how you get change. Without violence, without death, without armed revolution. So we should be facilitating that kind of change and we should do it in a way that's respectful of Korean culture and Korean uh, history, but we should make ourselves available and our resources available to be part of that mix. Are there any further remarks your honorable would like to mention before we conclude the interview? Only that it is very difficult in the present high intensity information loop we all share to separate the wheat from the chaff. So as we sit here, we discuss the problems. We've never been at a world more at peace. We've never been at a world with less poor people, more people getting out of poverty. We've never been at a world where state sovereignty is being actually respected. So it's important to look at the other side, not to diminish the risks and the challenges, but to keep a broad context. Because if you overreact to the negative side, you can actually make the positive side a lot more negative unnecessarily. So that's the only thing I would say. Now I can say that, because I'm in my seventh decade of looking at these things. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean I'm right, but it does mean that as you go through more and more of these crises, you realize there was less to every crisis. Let me say this to you. I don't think the present, I don't think who is in the White House now is all that important. It's never unimportant, but I don't think it's all that important. What the nuances are in the NAFTA agreement will matter for a bit, but they won't matter fundamentally because the core economics don't change. So I just think it's important that, and, and the, the problem with the present news cycle, I don't blame the media, I understand the pressures they're under, but the digital instantaneous platform approach to news makes small problems look more intense and broader because it comes at you 48 times a day. Whereas, you know, in the old days, you sit down with the Times of London and you'd figure out what was important because they thought about it for a couple of days. That's all gone. So it produces a sense of crisis and complexity which may be overstated. I believe we had a quite productive and engaging interview today, Honorable Shu Sigo. On behalf of the NATO Association of Canada, thank you once again for your time and sharing your perspective and ideas on this matter. My privilege.